Well, hello, CMYK community, and welcome. This is another CMYK Talk podcast. My name is Matt, and you are finding us in the midst of a series that we are entitling Roots, Branches, and Fruits. We're talking about this thing called church and Christianity, and what are the roots of this thing, and what has it grown into, and what's the fruit, both good and bad, of this stuff? Because we live in a culture, we live in a country, we live in a day and an age where Christianity seems like it can really lose the plot and gets really, really funky sometimes. And so for me, just in my own faith journey, it's been so good and important to look at, okay, where did this thing come from and what's happened over the last 2,000 years of the history of this church and, and why has it grown into what it's grown into? And there's some really beautiful things about that, as you might be able to imagine, and then as many of us uh, potentially see on a regular basis, there's some really negative broken things with that as well. So we're just trying to, throughout the course of this series, create some candid conversations around this stuff and wherever you are to be able to wrestle with what this thing called Christianity and church is, and maybe wrestle with, is this something that I even still want to lean into, or do I struggle and wrestle with it so much that it's just not worth it? And to be able to deal candidly and honestly in that way, I think is a really important thing for us to do. So welcome. I'm so glad whether you're a regular part of the CMYK community and a listener to this talk podcast, or you're just jumping in for the first time, so glad and so honored that you are a part of this stuff. Okay, jumping into it. In 1980, there was a basketball player that retired from the NBA. His name is Rick Barry. And Rick Barry was one of the greatest players within the NBA of all time. But there was something incredibly unique above and beyond just his regular play that is fascinating. When Rick Barry was fouled, and he'd have to go to the free throw line to shoot his two free shots. If you don't know basketball very well, there are these moments when both teams will line up on either side of the hoop, and someone gets two free shots because they were fouled. So they get two free chances to shoot the ball into the hoop for some points. Okay, we're all tracking now, right? And Rick Barry would do something unique, where most people, most players and basketball uh, professionals would find themselves holding the basketball above their head and shooting the ball in that fashion. It's the way that you've seen a basketball shot a hundred times. It's the way you probably shot the basketball when you played in gym so many years ago for some of us. Rick Barry decided to hold the basketball below his waist and with both hands to wing the ball up from below his waist. It's this thing known as the granny shot. And this looked silly. This is something that we've probably seen kids do. This is something you might still do. But it's something that when Rick did it, and when anybody else does it, everybody says, that's silly. Why would you do that? But Rick was onto something. And the more and more that Rick shot granny shots from the free throw line, as ridiculous as it looked, he retired from the NBA with a 90% accuracy rating on shooting from the free throw line. At the time, it was a record. It was the highest accuracy rating anybody had from the free throw line. And so different physicists and scientists and statisticians would look at it, and they began to say, if you really care about making the basketball into the hoop on a free throw shot, you've got to shoot a granny shot. That's the most accurate way to shoot the ball in that scenario. And so there's all this data, all these statistics, all these physics that come into why this is the best way to do it. But the problem was, nobody picked up on it. (laughs) 
And to this day, nobody, there's a couple players, but really nobody in the NBA is shooting the ball in this fashion. And throughout Rick's entire career, he was ridiculed and made fun of. People would point and laugh and say, that's just silly. Why would you shoot the ball like that? Even though there was all this data to say, this is the better way to do it. In fact, Shaquille O'Neal, who was a dominant player in the NBA in the 90s and early 2000s, he was historically bad at shooting free throws, like awful. People would just foul Shaq to make him go to the free throw line because they just figured he's not going to make the shots. And so he was working on his free throws, trying to up his percentage. And Rick Barry tried to work with Shaq, but Shaq said, there's no way that I'm going to shoot a granny shot. In fact, I quote, Shaq said, I would shoot 0% from the line because I'm too cool for shooting the ball like that because a granny shot has this quote sissy way of shooting attached to it and so you just don't do it there's a status quo within the nba for how you're to shoot a basketball and something that comes along and challenges the status quo as much data and statistics as it has behind it the status quo does not like it because it challenges their way of doing things. And so the status quo has a tendency to point and laugh, ridicule, and belittle this new way. The early church, the first followers of Christ, are found with this new way of interacting with the divine, a new way of interacting with the world, people, and stuff around them. And in the midst of this new way, there is a status quo, a traditional way that you're supposed to go about belief in God, particularly within the tradition that Christianity comes from, of Judaism. There is a way that you think and speak and act about God, and this Christian way seemed to be outside of it and challenge it. And even though in the midst of these conversations and thoughts about the early church, like shooting a basketball, a granny shot style, even though there was stats or reasoning or understanding why this would be a more beautiful, true way to interact with things, the status quo did not like this. And what we see happen from the very beginning of the early church is the status quo starts to come against them. And there's moments like this where leaders within the early church, a guy named Stephen, finds himself in a little bit of a pickle. It says in Acts chapter 6 that Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So it's important to note here that this is not just one dude that has a problem with what Stephen is doing. There are multiple groups of people that are coming against this new way because that's not the way you're supposed to do it. This is status quo and we've got to keep it this way and you're challenging it with this Jesus stuff. But, Acts says, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men and said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So here we have Stephen, the early church, challenging what has always been 
in their minds. And everything in them says, no, this is not okay. And so what do they do? They work to instigate, to, to rally the troops and get people to even lie and speak false witnesses, to false witness, to do everything that they can to make sure that this new way of thinking does not happen because they don't like it. When Stephen's on trial here, he responds in this moment and goes into this large and long explanation. Again, like Rick Barry, giving stats and statistics, reasons for why he's doing, believing, speaking the way that he is. And towards the end of his speech, what we see happen in Acts chapter 7 is they respond, this crowd, and says they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This is so much more than a granny shot. The status quo is so upset with this new way that they drag a man out into the streets and brutally murder and kill him because it's not okay to think and believe like that. Because anything that challenges the status quo is going to have the status quo come against them. But I think it's important to note that more than just a group of people that have a certain belief about God that don't like this new thing, what we see is those that are instigating the crowds, particularly within Judaism, are typically found to be those at the top, those in power. There are two kind of ruling power groups. There was the Pharisees and the Sadducees at this time within Jewish history. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were traditionally the ones that had the biggest problem with this new Jesus way. And they were the ones that were working to lead the crowds against the church. Why would they do this? Because the Pharisees and Sadducees, they had power. They had significance and influence in their world and in their communities. And this new Jesus way was something that challenged their power, significance, and influence. And what we know and what we see within human history is that just like the status quo, anything challenging those in power has those in power against it. Because there's traditionally one main job for those in power. It's the thing that causes them to stay up at night. And whether it's political power or whether it's financial power, significance, and influence, it's the thought that someday you might lose that power and significance. And so you become very invested and very interested in making sure that you will always hold on to that power and influence. This, so, so again, we see the early church, those in power. It, there's this root of those in power coming against this new thing because it challenges the status quo and the power of those who have always been. This is not unique to Judaism. This is not unique to Christianity. But we see it throughout history. There's individuals like Qian Xin Huan, who reigned in the early or late, I should say, B.C. period. And he united China around 221 B.C. And he ruled as the first emperor within the Qian, or the Qian dynasty. <clears throat> he was known to order the killing of scholars whose ideas he disagreed with and the burning of critical books. Why would you do this? 
because this emperor had a specific way that he liked and saw things. And anything that challenged him and his power, the most natural reaction for him was to kill, murder, and burn whatever it was that was standing in his way. Or you take Gaius Julius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, (laughs) or he was also known as Caligula. He was a Caesar in Rome from AD 37 to 41. And he was actually quite popular when he came in to power because of some things that he did. But over time, he became concerned, just like anybody that, be, that has power, he became concerned with holding on to his power. And what we see is he eliminated political rivals. He actually forced their parents to watch the execution. And he declared himself a living God. Why would you not only kill and murder someone that stands in opposition to you, but you would make their parents watch because you're trying to instigate fear and let everybody know you've got to stay away from challenging me or else. And and to influence parents in such a way to raise their kids that they would know this is the only and the best way to do it because for you to step outside of that means that I have to experience pain along with you experiencing pain. Or there's this Wu Zishan. And she reigned from AD 690 to AD 705. And she was this ruthless dictator, empress, of China. So this isn't just a dude thing, just so everybody knows, but throughout human history, women can do the same thing. And she ruthlessly eliminated opponents by dismissing, exiling, or executing them, even if they were her own family. Why? Because anything challenging those in power will have those in power come against them. It doesn't matter who you are or what you're trying to do. It doesn't matter the stats or the reasons why. This is always going to happen. And so here we have the story of the church. In the midst of all of these emperors, dictators, kings, the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories we could tell about those in power working hard to maintain and hold on to their power. And right in the midst of that is this story of this uprising, this new way to believe about God, to believe about God the world, and stuff around them. And there are those in power that are struggling with that. It's important to note that the roots of the early church are found in challenging power. That's seen in challenging religious power, as we've talked about. There are these institutions that have been set up, and the Jesus way is something that challenges those in power, challenges those ideas and thoughts. But I think even more than that at times, what we need to know and see is that Jesus was not just challenging religious power, but his way and this new movement was challenging on the political power as well. I think it's fascinating the way Reza Aslan, who's a historian, wrote this text entitled Zealots, dealing with the life of Jesus. And he talks about how the Roman government never had a tendency to execute or to crucify, to kill someone on a cross that simply believed a different kind of belief religiously, but that the crucifixion was something that was always a political move. He says, (laughs) Rome did not crucify good Jewish 
men or boys, like Jesus traditionally is seen to be. But that Rome had this institution set up in crucifixion crucifixion, that it was anything that was challenging the power of Rome. It was a political move to continue to always squash whatever uprising had the potential to come against Caesar. Reza says this, consider this, crucifixion was a punishment that Rome reserved almost exclusively for the crime of sedition. The plaque the Romans placed above Jesus' head as he writhed in pain, king of the Jews, was called a titulus, and despite common perception, it was not meant to be sarcastic. Every criminal who hung on a cross received a plaque declaring the specific crime for which he was being executed. Jesus' crime, in the eyes of Rome, was striving for kingly rule, i.e. treason, the same crime for which nearly every other messianic aspirant of the time was killed. It's important to note that Jesus, in this new way, was not just something that, re- that challenged the way church is done or religious thought and belief are found, but it actually stood up and was seen as a threat to the political power of the day as well. This is found, particularly in the early church, when we see this line and statements that Jesus is Lord. Now, we've got thousands of years of history with this statement that we've kind of turned it into these different things, and there's nothing wrong with those different things necessarily. But what's fascinating is where this line comes from is a political statement. Because at the time, Caesar was ruler over the Roman government. And the Roman government was ruler over the Jewish people and over the area of the world where the church began to rise. And in the midst of this government and this area was this political statement that you would make continually with your life, and that is, Caesar is Lord. We see it with this guy Caligula that we just talked about, that he believed and claimed himself to be this living God. And so you would commit your allegiance to the Roman government, commit your allegiance to Caesar by saying the statement of Caesar is Lord. And it's in the midst of this language and these kinds of politics that this statement within the early church started to rise in their writings where they would say, no, Jesus is Lord. There's a different way here. And this statement and this idea was a direct affront to the political power, influence, and significance of Caesar and the Roman government. And so what we see from the very beginning of this church movement, these roots are found in challenging those in power, both religious and politically. And anything challenging those in power has those in power against it. Now, why would we choose to talk about this? Because I think many of us have found a resonance, this beautiful, true, good way. And some, many of us would use the language of following Christ in the midst of that. There's something good and right there. But it's in the midst of wrestling with this good, beautiful, true way. It's the things that we've talked about up to this point within this series, abandoning this sacrificial system and understanding that there's grace and peace, learning to see that there is this divine spirit and power and significance that is a part of our lives and that we are empowered to go into the world and to bring beauty and life and this grace 
and peace. And we don't need the institutions and establishments like have seen before. To live our lives for the sake of others, not for the sake of ourselves. There is this good, beautiful, true way. And there's this part of us that we are seeing over and over and over again, played out throughout history and in our culture today, where there is a strong power coming against these ideas and this beauty. And it's in the midst of feeling this power come against us, whether it's those in religious power or those in political power, or those in relational power in our lives, and feeling this pressure to just stay, stay the course, status quo, don't rock the boat. How dare you think, act, believe like that? There's this tendency for us to find ourselves going, man, are they right? Should, should I not rock the boat? And as much as this resonates, as much as statistics or data or belief or beauty or consequences, whatever it is, as much as I would be influenced in this new way of thinking of this Christ-like way, there's this part of us that can really wrestle with and say, well, maybe I'm just supposed to live like everybody else was, is living. Maybe I'm just supposed to fall in line and do what I'm told, and, and this is what this is founded on, tradition. And the reason this has been so important for me is to understand that this early church movement is founded in upsetting power, and that to sign up for, to be a part of this Christ-following kind of way, is to know that there is going to be those in power that are going to come against these ideas, and they're going to use everything at their disposal— And whether it's an emperor working to kill you or whether it's someone that's got some really, really deep theological smarts trying to talk you out of it, there's this thing in us that begins to resonate, the Spirit of God that says, but this is the Jesus way. And as much as you want to use Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse to try and make this okay for you to kill, for you to hurt, for you to come against, for you to belittle, for you to segregate, whatever it is, there's something that I've got to stand up to this power and say, no. This is the Jesus way, and these are the roots of the church that we step into. Some of you listening to this podcast have found this deep, resonant truth of Christ. And and it's not this thing where we're like these tinfoil hat-wearing individuals that are way off in crazy town trying to convince other people of Lord Voltron and his influence over all the puppies in the world. Like, it's not something crazy that's out there. There's something that's just so right and good and beautiful about these things that we, we wrestle with. And some of us have walked through this wrestling match only to watch those around us challenge and we lose relationships. We hurt family members. We see people that we deeply, deeply care for and about say some really hurtful, broken, messy things. And it can cause us to just want to throw in the towel on all of it and say, well, why, why bother with any of this stuff if this is just going to be the reaction And it's just going to bring about more hurt and more pain and more mess for my life and for everybody else around. And the reason that this idea and this concept has been so powerful for me is to just realize this is what this has always been rooted in. And there 
always seems to be these institutions, status quo, and power that starts to rise. And in the midst of whatever those looks like, those look like, there is this work of Christ that's continually inviting us back to see the other, to give our lives away, to understand there's no need for a sacrificial system, to understand the empowerments and significance and beauty that you hold in this moment. And those, those things quickly and easily become a direct affront to the powers and status quo around us. So welcome. <laughs> and this for me is why this thing called church or faith community continues to be so significant and important for my life. Because in the midst of losing so many dear and important relationships that I still care for and love, in the midst of so much heartache and pain and and watching people come against and say things, there is this deep resonant truth, and I need community around that to know that me, Matt Blakesley, I'm not crazy. I'm not out there. There's something here. This Christ way is, is important and significant. And so the church throughout the last 2,000 years of history has been, I think, is designed as this space in the midst of whatever kind of culture and whatever kind of status quo or whatever kind of power is out there, these spaces where we can gather together around a table with bread and cup and remind ourselves there is power and there is significance in this story and this message of Christ breaking himself open and pouring himself out for the suffering of the world. And so as counterintuitive and as crazy as people might say that we are, this is what we are here to continue to do, to break ourselves open and pour ourselves out for the suffering of the world. This matters and this is significant and this is our work. I remember... On election night in 2016, my wife and I uh, were traveling, and we had planned to stay up and watch the election results, like a lot of the country, just interested in what was about to happen. And my goal or my design in talking about this is not to make any kind of political statement, but I remember that night when Trump was announced the winner. And the way that that hit me and the way that that impacted me and affected me, again, not trying to communicate anything about the other candidates, but for me, there was something personally that happened in that moment when Trump was announced the winner. First, I, I was alone because my wife fell asleep. It was like eight, you know, 8.30 at night where we were. <laughs> we were in L.A. and she fell asleep. So I was alone with my thoughts and feelings. So thanks for that, babe. <laughs> but I remember feeling um, this weight of realizing I have this set of beliefs, these ideas for what power and significance, what moves the story forward for our lives and the world around us, things like sacrifice and grace and peace, these kinds of things of Christ, and that I deeply resonate with them as true power and significance. And when the election results were flashed on the screen, I had this crisis because I had to realize the bully just won. And where I have this idea and resonance around what is power, here I am watching the election results 
And here I am interacting in a part of a world and a country where it seems like my ideas of what power is is not true at all because what is powerful and what seems to win at the end of the day and at the end of the results is the bully. For me, that was a a hard, hard moment. It was a hard moment for me personally to kind of step back and ask myself the question, okay, I say that this stuff is powerful, but that's not true here in this moment. And so am I, is all this hogwash? Should I just give up? Why bother? Because it seems like this is what wins at the end of the day, is to say these kinds of things and live your life in this kind of way and fashion and to, to run your campaign and debates and whatever in these ways. That's, that's just what wins at the end. I, I remember really wrestling with this idea that I'm in a hotel room and, and in the next room is my three-year-old son asleep and raising this kid and and there's a part of this story in history that that I get to tell him not what I want to tell him but what I get to tell him is yeah the the bully the bully wins that that's that's what's powerful that's what's significant that's what moves the story forward for your life and everything in me just I, I wanted to run and be done and just forget it why bother And then to remember that for me, there was this small community in Billings, Montana, that I would get to gather around a table with bread broken and a cup shared, that we would remind ourselves in the midst of whatever power is coming against me and this idea, this work of Christ, that there is this community that says, but we come back to this, breaking ourselves open and pouring ourselves out for the suffering of the world, seeing the others and the outsiders and choosing to embrace. That is power. And to come back to, whether it was in our Sunday gatherings or to come back to community and friends, family around me, to just be able to process honestly and candidly and, and, and be able to know, okay, I'm not crazy. And there's something resonant and true and good here. So the question for you today, the question for us today, is there something that's deep and true that, that is resonant about this way of Christ that we've talked about up into this series that you yourself have found to be true? And what are the powers and what are the status quo that are speaking against that? And what are those places and those moments that you go, man, am am I crazy? And should I just abandon all of this? And and may you know (laughs) you're not crazy. You're not out there. But this deep resonance that stands up to power, whether it's within within religious institutions, whether it's political power, whether it's the relationships around us, is something that we have been a part of for 2,000 years. This is called church. And so this is our work together. That you would pick yourself up and be honest about what hurts, and be honest about where it seems like the bully wins, where it seems like money is everything, where it seems like capitalism is just taking over, and it doesn't matter who you are. And if, if you don't have a giant 
you know, amount of numbers of money behind your name, these kinds of things to be able to say, okay, I get that. That's power. I get that. But this is not true. And there's this deep resonant work of giving our lives away and caring for those in need around us. This is good work. And this for me is why church and faith community still matters. So wherever you are, may you know you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone. And this is a deep, resonant work that has good roots that we are tapping into. I love you. And if there's anything that we can do for you, please let us know. We'll be back next week as we continue on in this series. Thanks.